and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wayspur Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. We know that superbugs are a thing thanks to our dependence on antibiotics that's been getting worse and worse. Mm -hmm. So I don't mean to sound alarmist, but according to Gizmodo, (laughs) raw dog food might be driving the spread of dangerous superbugs. Because some drug-resistant bacteria from dog food are the same as those found in hospital patients. Wow. Some scientists from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention have advised against the burgeoning trend of feeding raw food to pets because of the ability to spread germs like E. coli, salmonella, and listeria. All things that we're always warned about when it comes to handling raw meat mm-hmm. meant for human consumption, right? <laughs> yeah, so I guess this isn't an issue of, like, it's lower quality to begin with. It's just that nobody should be eating all raw everything. Right, and even if it's just any raw is kind of the impression that I'm getting here. The team apparently found upsetting, which is the word they used, upsetting uh- levels of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in dozens of dog food products. The caveat here is this was mostly reviewed in pork. Portugal. So, you know, I wouldn't say Americans, you can relax because uh, no, no, we should not. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously, drug resistant bacteria are a significant health risk because they make minor scrapes and infections way more dangerous and sometimes even life threatening. Hmm. Figures provided by the World Health Organization show that globally around 700,000 people each year die from these superbugs. And it's a problem that's only going to get worse because the World Health Organization estimates that By 2050, about 10 million people will die each year from multidrug-resistant germs. So there are a lot of varieties that raw food can come in, but of these samples, 54% contain traces of enterococci, which is a bacterium present in human intestines and the vaginal tract. And also in soil and water. Mm -hmm. But in 2017, a particular strain of enterococci was responsible for about 54,000 infections and about 5,400 deaths. And this is in the U.S. now. So all raw dog food sampled in the study contained this multidrug resistant enterococci, whereas only three non-raw samples contained the bacterium. Over 40% of the enterococci bacteria they found was found to be resistant to common antibiotics as well as last resort antibiotics, which Mm. are obviously a little bit stronger. So does this mean I can't let my dog lick me on the mouth anymore? I mean, as I do, I let him kiss me. I'm I'm a gross person. I've I've heard that getting kissed on the mouth by a dog is a lot cleaner than getting kissed on the mouth by a cat, since cats definitely lick their own buttholes. Oh, Mm. that's true. My dogs don't do that. (laughs) They can't reach. Maybe not as frequently, but yeah, it it can be done. Yeah. What was that bacteria called? Enterococci. I'm guessing on the spelling, but it's E-N-T-E-R-O-C-O. O-C-C-I. See, that sounds like a nice Italian pasta. And it's upsetting <laughs> that it kills us. Well, I'll admit the double C led me to think that I was lending it an Italian accent. It could mm-hmm. be intero cosicai. I don't... Ah, I see. I see. <laughs> but pasta good... Wash your hands anyway. It's a good right. habit. Just Even wash your hands, Even when you're y'all. eating pasta. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Fair, fair. Next link. 
Next link. This article comes to us from theguardian.com, and it is titled Climate Scientists Shocked by Scale of Floods in Germany. Because if they're shocked, we got to be panicking like that. Yeah. Yeah. And this is probably even before the floods in China have occurred in terms of publication, but it's been quite a year for them. Yeah. So I figured we'd just get all the bad news out of the way first, (laughs) and then we can go to the more fun stuff afterwards. Well, that's what I'm doing with mine. I don't know about (laughs) y'all. But uh, precipitation records were smashed across a wide area of the Rhine Basin on Wednesday with devastating consequences. At least 58 people have died, tens of thousands of homes flooded and power supplies disrupted. Wow. Part of Rhineland Palatinate and North Rhine-Westphalia were inundated with 148 liters of rain per square meter within 48 hours in a part of Germany that usually only sees about 80 liters in the entirety of July. So just absurd. And if Mm. you look at these photos, I mean, the top photo literally looks like New Orleans marshes. Like it's... It's insane. Yeah. Dieter Gerdin, a professor of climatology, said, I am surprised by how far it is above the previous record. We seem to be not just above normal, but in domains we didn't expect in terms of spatial extent and the speed it developed. Previous summer downpours have been as heavy, but have hit a smaller area. This week's event is totally untypical for that region. It lasted a long time and affected a wide area, he said. Hmm. Scientists will need more time to assess the extent to which human emissions made the storm more likely, but the record downpour is in keeping with the broader global trends. The seven hottest years in recorded history have occurred since 2014, largely as a result of global heating, which is caused by engine exhaust, fumes, forest burning, and other human activities. Computer models predict this will cause more extreme weather, which means records will be broken with more frequency in more places. The Americas have been the focus in recent weeks. The Canadian National Daily Heat record was exceeded by more than five centimeters two weeks ago, as were several local records in Oregon and Washington. Scientists said that these extremes at such latitudes were virtually impossible without human-driven warming. Mm -hmm. Last weekend, the monitoring station at Death Valley in California registered 55.4 Celsius, which could prove to be the highest reliably recorded temperature on Earth. Wow. And that is 129 degrees Fahrenheit, 0.92, so really 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, Absolutely unlivable. You would die within minutes walking around in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Daniel Swain, a climate scientist at the University of California, Los Angeles, said so many records were being set in the U.S. this summer that they no longer made the news. The extremes that would have been newsworthy a couple of years ago aren't because they pale in comparison to the astonishing rises a few weeks ago. The U.S. is often in the spotlight, but we have also seen extraordinary heat events in northern Europe and Siberia. Mm -hmm. This is not a localized freak event. It is definitely part of a coherent global pattern. Suburbs of Tokyo have been drenched in the heaviest rainfall since measurements began, and a usual month's worth of July rain fell on London in a single day. Events that were once in a hundred years are becoming commonplace. Mm -hmm. Freak weather is increasingly normal. Some experts fear the recent jolts indicate the climate system may have crossed a dangerous threshold. Instead of smoothly rising temperatures and steadily increasing extremes, they're examining whether the trend may be increasingly non-linear or bumpy as a result of knock-on effects from drought or ice melt in the Arctic. This theory is contentious, but recent events have prompted more discussion about this possibility and the reliability of models based on past observations. Well, 
I guess that's, that's it where for it humanity. Ends. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I don't know if it's the end. It's just a new reality where these freak events are just normal now, and getting right. used to that. So I'm I, I remain hopeful that the X Games and Red Bull can capitalize <laughs> on this new era of extreme weather. We'll have yeah. sand dune surfing, and you know, <laughs> that's already a thing. Yeah. I mean, people are already Ooh. going on sand dunes on like snowboards and things like that. They actually will hang glide or even helicopter in and then just ride them down. So, you know, the human spirit endures and it continues to wreck all of our resources in the process. But I mean, speaking as a non-scientist, just the idea of this uh, supposedly contentious theory that things will pick up and become even more extreme it just fits with everything else that's been happening <laughs> right. at the same time. Yeah. Like everything has been an exponential story. COVID was, yeah. freaking GameStop was, <laughs> now the weather is like what, you know, yeah. it's. I mean, the one constellation is like, if you think about it, some 50% of the earth is currently uninhabitable because mm-hmm. it's too cold. So all it really means is we're all going to have to pack up and migrate up to northern Canada, where the weather will be perfectly lovely, and we'll have to reestablish all of civilization in our caravans, and <laughs> and then we'll be fine. Like, we're not, the whole planet's not going to go. We're just going to have to move, and some people are going to get left behind, and that's going to be very sad. And by some people, you mean everyone who is not extremely wealthy, right, which is absolutely. most of us. So, right. right. <laughs> no, those who don't have vehicles are not going to be able to walk to Canada. You're going to be yep. screwed. Yeah. That's so. right. But I hear Canada's lovely, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, next link. (laughs) Next Next link. Well, next up, we have an article from New Atlas about snake venom and some of the cool things you can do with it other than dying. Oh! (laughs) In particular, scientists have now developed a way to use it as a surgical super glue that stops bleeding almost instantly. Uh, Does it stop bleeding because it's infiltrating your body with venom? Well, yeah. So, like, the key thing to understand is how venom actually works, which is that in most cases, venom itself is not directly toxic to us the way we might think of a chemical or a poison being toxic. Instead, snake venom contains an enzyme called batroxabin, which causes rapid blood clotting. Basically, it turns our blood chunky, and that's what kills us. So... Ever since batroxabin was officially discovered in 1936, it has been used in surgical settings to control bleeding. But, you know, it was sort of like chemotherapy in the sense that it was demonstrably bad for you, but they tried to use it in a controlled manner to take care of the big problem without creating too many secondary problems. More recently, they did figure out how to make batroxabin synthetically from genetically modified bacteria rather than milking actual snakes for their venom. Nice. And then about six years ago, they had another breakthrough when they combined that synthetic batroxabin with a new hydrogel substance created by researchers at Rice University. The hydrogel is made out of peptides and nanofibers that sort of naturally assemble themselves into a microscopic scaffolding shape which, if you inject it directly into a wound, acts as sort of a biological gauze that gives damaged tissue something to build on while it's healing. So combining batroxabin with that was a really logical next step because you do want the blood to clot to speed healing. But also because of the hydrogel, the batroxabin would remain localized and not spread to other parts of the body where you didn't necessarily want clotting. And testing showed that when the hydrogel was injected into a wound, bleeding would completely stop within an average of six seconds. 
What? Wow. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine somebody just laying out on a table dying and all of a sudden just like, boop, you're done. It's not going anymore. Yeah. I mean, especially for like military application, it could even be a twofer, right? It helps heal your soldiers and also attacks the other side. (laughs) Just inject them all with snake venom. (laughs) Well, the drawback, of course, was that this hydrogel stuff was relatively hard to make and really only appropriate for a hospital setting. So now, researchers at the universities of Western Ontario, Manitoba, and Shanto have developed a new modified gelatin base for the batroxabin that is more appropriate for emergency settings out in the wild. Mm. It's a little thicker than the hydrogel, so it won't wash away in an active blood flow. And it's actually light-activated, meaning it (gasps) will solidify in place when you shine a bright light directly on it. Whoa! The lead author of the study, Kibret McConnant, says that even a smartphone flashlight will do the job. That's amazing. So the new gelatin-based superglue doesn't work quite as well as the hydrogel. It takes about 45 seconds to close up a major wound. But, you know, obviously that's still better than bleeding out. And the finished product is about 10 times stronger than fibrin glue, which is what's currently used in most emergency situations. Like, I don't know if you guys know that, but if you're cut now... They might do butterfly bandages, but they also might just use super glue. Super glue. Yeah. yeah. I've heard like, about Like, it's that. functionally identical to plain old super glue you get at the grocery store. If you ever cut yourself at home, just seriously put some super glue on it. You'll be fine. <laughs> I know that because I'm what they call an easy bleeder. Like, I don't have oh. full-on hemophilia, but I, I bleed too much. My blood does not want to clot as easily as it should. And I'm super clumsy in the kitchen. So I have all sorts of at-home remedies in my kitchen to stop cuts. Like, wow. I can tell you, if you don't have any super glue on hand, another good one is fine ground black pepper. Huh. <gasps> no. Yeah, yeah. You sprinkle it on and it, just, it soaks it up like a little sponge, clots it immediately. Also stings like a mofo. Uh, yeah, that was my follow-up yeah, right it there. It absolutely <laughs> does. But again, if your option is gushing blood or it stings for a minute, I'm going to tell you, I put it on. It worked. <laughs> my the vampire special. <laughs> So they're thinking that this snake venom superglue could be packaged into a small tube for first aid kits, and it could even become something that people who take blood thinners could carry with them like an EpiPen. Because the cool thing about batroxabin is it's not affected by drugs like heparin, which do stop our natural clotting ability. That's why people take them. They're on blood thinners because their blood is too clotty. But if you're on heparin and you get cut, then you have the opposite problem. So if you have someone who's taking heparin and prone to bleeding, this could save their lives in the case of a severe injury. Or, you know, just stick a shaker of black pepper in your pocket. But that seems like (laughs) a less humanitarian way to deal with it if you can have snake venom instead. Right, right. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, let's stick with the scaly things for now. Uh, According to NPR, oversized goldfish are taking over one Minnesota lake. Like giant, (laughs) giant goldfish? What's an oversized goldfish? An oversized goldfish is a goldfish that is still alive. Oh, yeah. They just keep growing. They just keep growing. Okay. Yeah. They just keep growing because that's what happens. So the authorities in Burnsville, Minnesota are urging residents and owners of pet goldfish Please do not dispose of the family pet (laughs) in lakes and ponds. They grow bigger than you think and contribute to poor water quality by mucking up the bottom sediments and uprooting plants. And I got to say, they're real pretty. I mean, you know, they've got those beautiful tails and they've Mm -hmm. got like that bright orange color and they just kind of look like a big fat adult pet goldfish. Are they good to eat, I wonder? Like overfishing is a problem in other places. Couldn't they just say, hey, it's open season. Everybody go get your dinner from this lake. I'm not sure they taste as good as Mm -hmm. 
the native fish, which is why they're making this kind of a thing, right? Because mm -hmm. wildlife officials found tens of thousands of goldfish swimming in Big Woods Lake in Chaska, which is a suburb of Minneapolis, and a team had to remove a truckload of 500,000 wow. of the goldfish because they were causing so many environmental issues. So, I mean, even if they taste good, they're just screwing up the lakes and the ponds to such a degree that it's sucking for everybody else, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's not just Minnesota. We don't want to only pick on them. The problem has also cropped up in Boulder, Colorado and Lake Tahoe, Nevada, where researchers found thousands of goldfish in local lakes in both areas years ago. It is illegal in most states, including Minnesota, to dump unwanted goldfish into local ponds. It's actually considered illegal fish stocking. <laughs> <laughs> they also reproduce really quickly. They can mm. live up to 25 years and are a real pain to remove. So if you are a pet owner and have realized a decades-long commitment with your goldfish is not what you had in <laughs> mind, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recommends putting Goldie up for adoption. I'd be curious to read that Craigslist ad. Another <laughs> alternative is to contact a local veterinarian or pet retailer to find ways to humanely dispose of the fish without causing harm to native fish species in your local neighborhood. I wonder how much of this is the Finding Nemo effect. Like that movie convinced a whole generation of kids, it's cruel to keep your fish in a fish tank. Oh, yeah. And I know there were a bunch of news stories immediately afterwards of people flushing their fish because in the Ugh. movie, all water leads oh, to the ocean, yeah. which is a lie. Yeah, but, that is not the case here. No. <laughs> but you might think there's probably some smart kids out there who are like, all right, cool, I'll just go dump them in a lake instead. And then he really will get out into oh, yeah. a, a new home. Listen, we have to be extremely careful with what we're doing in our movies, our advertisements. <laughs> I mean, I remember the big chihuahua phase in the early aughts because of the Taco Bell commercials. Right. Suddenly everyone wanted a pet chihuahua. Yeah. And then suddenly the shelters and mm -hmm. are still filled with really awful overbred chihuahuas. So just <laughs> mind your pets, y'all. Don't call them awful. They're adorable. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. The, some are really adorable. Some are really awful. And and we can have a, a breed head-to-head -head, uh, right, competition right. later. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize to all chihuahua owners and to the Chihuahuas themselves. You are lovely dogs. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from theconversation.com and it's titled, When Did Humans Start Experimenting with Alcohol and Drugs? Before we had the written word. Yeah. Can we possibly narrow that down? I mean, that seems like one of the first things we did. Yeah. Well, that's what we're going to try and find out in this article. So <laughs> strap in. So given humanity's love of drugs and alcohol, you might assume getting high is an ancient, even prehistoric tradition. Mm -hmm. Some researchers have suggested prehistoric cave paintings were made by humans experiencing altered states of consciousness. <laughs> This dude's yes. high, you can tell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Others, perhaps inspired more by hallucinogens than hard evidence, suggest that drugs triggered the evolution of human consciousness. Yeah. That's a little bit of shade from the article. Yeah. Yeah, there's surprisingly <laughs> little archaeological evidence for prehistoric drug use. Mm. African hunter-gatherers, bushmen, pygmies, and Hadzabi people likely lived their lives in ways similar to ancestral human cultures. The most compelling evidence for the use of drugs by such early humans is a potentially hallucinogenic plant, kaishi, used by Bushmen healers. The interesting thing about this plant, kaishi, is it actually has an exclamation mark in front of it, and I don't know how to pronounce that. It's oh, it's the, one of those click languages. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, I see. 
Well, I won't attempt it. I will omit it because <laughs> I, I don't know how to do that. Right. Um, so how much Bushmen historically used drugs is debated, and otherwise there's little evidence for drug use in hunter-gatherers. The implication is that despite Africa's diverse plants and fungi, early humans used drugs rarely, maybe to induce trances during rituals, if at all. Hmm. Perhaps their lifestyle meant they rarely felt the need for escape. Exercise, sunlight, nature, time with friends and family, mm. they're powerful antidepressants. Drugs are also dangerous. Just as you shouldn't drive drunk, it's risky to get high when lions lurk in the bush mm, or a hostile tribe waits one valley over. But migrating out of Africa 100,000 years ago, humans explored new lands and encountered new substances. People discovered opium poppies in the Mediterranean and cannabis and tea in Asia. Tea as caffeinated tea is considered... Yes. Well, yeah, yeah, technically caffeine is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I know some people who are pretty dedicated, like, tea drinkers, and oh, they yeah. do describe that there's, you know, the specific phenomenon with certain Chinese teas as being, like, getting tea drunk. Hmm. And it's huh. something in the nutrients besides just the caffeine, but it synergizes really, really well, huh. and you do feel kind of, like, very up and elevated. So, yeah, tea, tea itself is a totally, like, deep realm that, uh, just because I think it's not super strong strong, people tend to overlook it, but mm -hmm. it can get that way. Nice. So archaeologists have found evidence of opium use in Europe by 5700 BC. Cannabis seeds appear in archaeological digs at 8100 BC in Asia. Wow. And the ancient Greek historian Herodotus reported Scythians getting high on weed in 450 BC. Tea was brewed in China by 100 BC, which honestly is surprisingly late. Yeah, I was going to say, that seems very late to me. Yeah. You think, I don't know, who am I yeah. to say that they should have figured it out sooner? Yeah. <laughs> so when hunters trekked across the Bering Land Bridge 30,000 years ago into Alaska and headed south, they found a chemical cornucopia. American psychedelics include peyote cactus, San Pedro cactus, morning glory, datura, salvia, anadenanthera, ayahuasca, and over 20 species of psychoactive mushrooms. Wow. It was a pre-Columbian burning man. I had no idea the <laughs> Americas were like this hotbed of psychoactive substances. That's awesome. Oh, yeah, but not all of those that way listed can be treated the same way. For sure. example, I would never recommend Morning Glory or Datura, a number of those, yeah. to anyone because the risk of poisoning toxicity is mm -hmm. too high. Mm. Yeah. There's an entire subreddit you can find of people who talk about Datura, and some actually do it. But mostly it's about them talking about how you should not do Datura because <laughs> right, it will completely right. mess you up. So indigenous Americans also invented the nasal administration of tobacco and hallucinogens. Mm -hmm. So they were the first to snort drugs, a practice that Europeans later borrowed. <laughs> You're welcome, Europe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this American psychedelic culture is ancient. Peyote buttons have been carbon dated to 4000 BC, hmm. while Mexican mushroom statues hint at psilocybin use in 500 BC. Hmm. A thousand-year-old stash found in Bolivia contained cocaine, anadenanthera, and ayahuasca, and must have been one hell of a trip. <laughs> I was just one dude. Like, the rest of the society was like, oh, man, it's Stoner Pete again. Here he comes. Yeah. Like, it or, wasn't, you know, great wise shaman of the village. Sure. Yeah, yeah, That's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, we get around to inventing alcohol. So a huge step in the evolution of debauchery mm. was the invention of agriculture, because farming made booze possible. Right. It created a surplus of sugars and starches, which mashed and left to ferment, magically transformed into potent brews. Humans invented alcohol many times independently, in fact. The oldest booze dates to 7000 BC in China. Wine was fermented in the Caucasus in 6000 BC. 
Sumerians brewed beer in 3000 BC, and in the Americas, Aztecs made pulque from the same agaves used today for tequila, mm. and Incas brewed chicha, a corn beer. Mm. Wine was central to ancient Greek and Roman cultures, was served at Plato's Symposium, and remains incorporated in the Jewish Seder and Christian communion rituals. Mm -hmm. But there's little evidence early hunter-gatherers used them, which implies agricultural societies promoted substance use. But why? Because farming sucks and you got to escape, yeah. man. Like... <laughs> yeah. The only way you can farm enough to make booze is to be drunk while you're doing that's it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so it is possible that large civilizations simply drive innovations of all kinds. Mm. Perhaps alcohol and drugs also promoted civilization. Drinking can help people socialize. Mm. And it may just be safer to get drunk or high in a city than in the savannah. A darker possibility is still that psychoactive substance use developed in response to civilization's ills. Mm -hmm. Large societies create large problems. Wars, plagues, inequalities in wealth and power. Perhaps when people couldn't change their circumstances, they just decided to change their minds. And the article ends saying, it's a complex problem. Just thinking about it makes me want to grab a beer. <laughs> Yeah, I think I lean more towards the darker side than the we discovered drugs and that made us want to build a pyramid. I think it's much more like, oh, man, I've been toiling away at this pyramid all day. I hate my life. I'm going to figure out a way to escape it. <laughs> <laughs> I personally feel like early humans were pretty much eating, smoking and imbibing literally anything they could get their hands on. Yeah. Just because... What else are you going to do? Because like you're hungry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. exactly. And then one day you have a crazy trip and then you tell all your friends about it. That's right. That, <laughs> An accident. <laughs> that, that's how language developed is you have to communicate which of those berries made you <laughs> lose your mind for a little yeah, while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> next link. Next link. All right. This next one is from ZME Science and it's called Durinkuyu, the Ancient Underground City. Hmm. So this is an archaeological site that was discovered in the 1960s by a Turkish man who was remodeling his basement. Basically, he, you know, knocked down one wall to make a little more space and discovered this huge empty chamber behind it, oh which he ultimately God. realized was connected to an entire city's worth of rooms and passageways that went what? 18 stories deep. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, you knock down a wall and you uncover a city? Yeah. Like, I yeah, wouldn't tell anyone. I would throw the most epic <laughs> rave ever. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so according to the Turkish Department of Culture, our best guess is that Durinkuyu was carved between 700 to 600 BCE by the Phrygians, who were an ancient Indo-European culture that founded the Anatolian Kingdom. The evidence that we have for this is a written account from Xenophon of Athens in 370 BCE, which describes how the people in Anatolia excavated their homes underground and that these underground dwellings were large enough for a family, domestic animals, and supplies of stored food. Oh my gosh. Wow. So eventually it's believed that individual dwellings began to get joined together until the entire complex was connected and could have housed as many as 20,000 people within an area of 172 square miles. And that's Whoa. 172 square miles, and then it goes 18 stories deep. So, I mean, this was oh massive. Oh, gosh. Wow. And basically, the only reason they could pull this off, given their technology at the time, was because the entire Cappadocia region of Turkey is made mostly of compacted volcanic ash, mm. which is stone, but it is significantly easier to dig through than, say, limestone or other rock would have been. Mm -hmm. And while the underground chambers may have started off as just extra storage space for individual houses, they did eventually grow to have all the same amenities than an above-ground house would have. 
They were fully ventilated. They used the same well shafts that brought water to the upper city. And the whole place was lit with a system of torches. Archaeologists believe that during the hot summers of the region, underground dwellers actually would have been more comfortable than the city dwellers above them. They're also pretty sure that it was used as a safe haven for persecuted groups, which sort of varied over the centuries. So early on, the city was a refuge for early Christians looking to escape the Romans. But then during the Arab-Byzantine Wars from 780 to 1180, they have a lot of evidence that these chambers were heavily used by Muslims escaping persecution. Mm. And basically, whenever any invading force attacked the city, everyone would go underground. They would block off the entrance tunnels with some big stones and just hole up with plenty of food and livestock until the force left again. The citizens could even use the lower floors to cut off the water supply to the city above so that the invading soldiers couldn't poison their well or, of course, use any of the water for themselves. Smart. They also had frequent narrow passageways in the network of rooms so that if any force did get past the big stone entrance, they would at various points have to crawl through one at a time and so they could be easily stopped by a group of people on the other side. Mm. But, in fact, even in peacetime, there were definitely people living long-term in the underground city. They found Mm. evidence that some rooms served as schools, churches, and marketplaces, and they have since discovered many other smaller versions of this same concept in other areas of Cappadocia. Like in 2013, they discovered a new one under the former capital city site of Nevsahir, which they haven't even fully explored yet, but they believe eventually will turn out to be about 30% larger than Dorinkuyu. And yeah, some of these cities were even connected to each other, including a three-mile tunnel connecting Dorinkuyu to the next city over called Kemakli. But part of that tunnel has since collapsed, so it's not there anymore. (laughs) I totally want to go visit these spaces. Well, Dorinkuyu is open to the public if you want to go, though visitors are unfortunately restricted to an area that covers only about 10% of the total space, which given that some of it has collapsed already, I don't think that's a bad idea. That seems like a a safe thing. (laughs) But, you know, it might be good to go and get a few ideas because if things keep heating up, we may all be living underground again sooner rather than later. Right. And, you know, you're not going to be digging underground here in Texas for sure, but. We could get the idea and then go somewhere where it's diggable. Right, right. Oh, look, more tarantulas. Okay. Well, and just limestone. Like, I grew up here and I was absolutely fascinated by the concept of basements. Like, we go visit my husband's family up in Illinois and they're like, oh, yeah, they've got a a built out basement. I was like, a basement? What is that? Like, I don't understand. Like, go back to the first thing. (laughs) Next link. Next link. Uh, I liked Way's article so much that I'm going to hit another one that kind of is in the same vein. This is from JSTOR Daily. And this is a little piece on the nice married couple who inspired people to shroom. Oh. And it's the intro sentence to this whole article that really got me. Before he retired as a vice president at J.P. Morgan in 1963, Mm. which is like, I want to watch this biopic now. Right, right. right. (laughs) He had all he could do of finance and everything else. But R. Gordon Wasson was famous for introducing Americans to hallucinogenic mushrooms. His groundbreaking Seeking the Magic Mushroom was published in Life a pinnacle of mainstream media Mm -hmm. in May 1957. So this was the first time we'd heard of it. Like, Americans didn't really know about shrooms until then. Yeah, yeah. It was maybe kind of an academic or scholastic or just very underground kind of exercise. But when a... (laughs) I still can't... Former bank director. A J.P. Morgan, before he retired. Oh, I just can only imagine what his life was like to pave the way to discovering magic mushrooms. And not just finding them, but evangelizing them, basically. Mm -hmm. Because he published it in Life magazine, which was 
we have no modern media analog because our media landscape is kind of jacked right now. But that's a really big deal. And sure, yeah. after his article, a week later, Valentina Wasson, who was a pediatrician and Gordon's wife, she published her own account of what she described as the technicolor visions she had experienced in Mexico in this week, which was a Sunday magazine inserted in about 37 newspapers across the country with a total circulation of $12 million. So this is how psychedelic shrooms went national and in everyday conversation. Hmm. Gordon and Valentina were a great team. He was actually averse to mushrooms at first, but then he married Valentina, whose birth <laughs> name is Valentina Pavlovna Gerkin. She had been raised with a tradition of foraging in the wild, and the pair coined the terms mycophile and mycophobe for the love and fear of mushrooms they saw in themselves and in people around the world. Together, they wrote about the culture of mushrooms before Valentina died in 1958. Of course, they were not obviously the ones to discover magic mushrooms, as Way's article very right. clearly noted. Some Mexicans had known about them for centuries, and so did the CIA, which had covertly helped fund the Wassons trip via one of their other expedition members. Wow. And in 1958, the year after the Wassons articles went live and published, the Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman isolated and named the psychedelic compound that triggers the visions induced by eating these mushrooms. We know it now as psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And of course, Hoffman had earlier discovered lysergic acid. We mostly know it as LSD. Oh, it was the same guy. Hoffman. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he, he discovered LSD. Yeah, he was the LSD guy and the psilocybin guy. That's interesting. <laughs> oh, wow. yeah. If you want to go down into a Hoffman rabbit hole, it's pretty fascinating. He kept very meticulous diary entries, and he's the one that, you know, accidentally ingested the LSD and took a bike ride. There's, right. There's great literature on him if you're ever curious. Um, but back to Wasson. After he retired from his big-time banking job, he became an indefatigable popularizer of magic mushrooms. He postulated that there had been a global prehistoric mushroom cult. If that sounds familiar to Way, it should. <laughs> mm. However, that is an idea that did not take among many historians and anthropologists. And apparently, Wasson did come to dislike the word hallucinogenic, and he preferred the term entheogenic instead. Hmm. The word has the same Greek root as enthusiasm. It's a substance that makes you believe you're being filled with the presence of God or the divine. Hmm. He later traveled the world in search of evidence of the divine mushroom, maybe the godlike soma of the Vedic texts, because he and co-author Wendy Doniger of Flaherty argued it was actually fungal in nature and perhaps the last thing the Buddha consumed before his ascension to nirvana. Hmm. So he was definitely a mycophile by the time of his death in 1986. He was 88 years old. By then, however, the psychoactive compounds in magic mushrooms, as well as LSD and peyote, had been illegal in the U.S. for nearly two decades. I mean, it is interesting that the CIA was sort of instrumental in helping us get this, but then also helping prosecute these wars against these drugs. I mean, you know, make up your mind. Yeah, that's so atypical of American <laughs> right. offices and bureaus to have hypocritical stances on things. I mean, come <laughs> on, guys. <laughs> Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Is the Universe a Fractal? Shoplifting for Fun and Profit? And They Got Out of Hand, Auckland Street Wrestles with Fate of 400 Pet Rabbits. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. 
If you noticed the lack of advertisements, it wasn't an accident. It was a choice. We hope it's a choice you agree with. If you'd like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.